Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, where we have, as we do every week, lots of science for your ear holes. Uh, with me this week we have Stu. Stu, how are you? I'm I'm very well. I'm very well. Nice to nice to be getting a bit of summer around. You know, it seems to be heating up where I am. Um, you know, it, it's yeah. getting a, getting a last gasp of summer in before we run out. I guess. I mean, they were talking about like uh, calling it a heat engine, like a heat wave. But you know, I like how you're looking on the the very bright side there, Stu. Hey, look! If nothing else, I might get some ripe tomatoes before this so-called summer comes to an end. Speaking of getting great um, produce, um, what story are you presenting us this week? Well, I'm I'm looking into a story about widely accepted science, which suddenly gets sort of proven wrong. Which is, you know, that's kind of what science does. I mean, often we often often the scientific understanding of something stands for a very long time, and then someone produces that one piece of evidence which says, "Oh no, actually, we had it wrong all along, and it doesn't work the way we thought it might have worked." Um, and this this does happen a lot in um, many fields of science, but in evolutionary biology it seems to happen a fair bit because a lot of evolution we're kind of extrapolating on things that are still mm-hmm. around um, and kind of looking for models of things and maybe the way they work and that sort of thing. So I'm actually looking at a bit of research, which uh, is in a big big question in evolutionary biology. How did vertebrates arise? Um, before vertebrate animals were around, there was animals all over the place and there still are animals that are invertebrates. Um, but the vertebrates kind of changed the, 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 changed the game. Um, they gave rise to fish and amphibians and reptiles and mammals and birds and all of these animals which we, th- you know, if you say animals, that's the ones you probably think of. Um, before that, there was a whole bunch of other different animals how did we get from invertebrates to vertebrates? There was a theory that was around for a really long time um, and, you know, it wasn't quite right and has relatively recently been disproven. We're going to talk about that and, um, you know, why it might it might not be a bad thing that we that this theory got proven wrong. I'll explain why when, when I get down into the story later in the show, but it's, a, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting tale. Thank you, Stu. I look forward to you presenting your core data. <laughs> little um, little phylum joke there. I think it's a phylum. I don't know. It's, it's taxonomy jokes. Taxonomy. Yeah. 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 Well, um, me, I also have a story. Not about things being overturned. Actually, this is a story. It feels a bit similar to the last one I did. Uh, so I feel like I'm not off to a good start this year. You may recall a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the kind of the much-hyped news story that the inner core of the Earth was had stopped spinning and was going to start spinning in the other direction. 
Um, now, if you want to go back and listen to that episode, you can. It's on our podcast feed, but I'll spoil it for you now. Of course, the inner core is not going to spin in the opposite direction. Um, it was a widely kind of, yeah, overhyped, but also misinterpreted story. Um, the story I'm doing this week is, I guess it's also been a much hyped story. It's not so much misinterpreted. It's just kind of one of those stories that gets people's attention and everyone is just kind of going, huh? Like all the, the scientific community is going, huh? And this is the idea that black holes may be responsible for dark energy. Um, Dark energy being, of course, the thing that causes the universe's expansion to accelerate. Um, black holes being those black hole-like things that are in space. Is, is this a case of? Is this a case of? There's there's one thing we can't really explain very well, and we're trying to use it to explain another thing we can't explain very well. Is that is that kind of what's uh, going a, on? A here? little bit. That's um, how some people have put it. Um, but look, it is actually a really interesting idea. Um, yeah, it's it's met with a lot of scepticism, to say the least. Um, but it is an interesting idea. Um, I won't claim to fully understand it, but I am not alone with that. Some of the, the best experts in the world, as far as I can figure out, don't really understand what's going on here. Um, but yeah, we'll do we'll talk about it a little bit Um so, yeah, look, it may turn to be nothing, but, you know, everyone loves a good cosmology story and black holes and dark energy and things. So I thought that'd be a nice little kind of nugget to throw out there. All right, so that is some, uh, I guess, yeah, groundbreaking science we have, Earth universe-shattering science we have for you. Uh, on with the show. Scientific research has allowed humans to understand the universe in ways other systems of investigation and various philosophies can't quite match up to. Now, the scientific method is based on observing things happening and then proposing a hypothesis about how they work and then, importantly, testing the hypothesis. And this can be sometimes quite easy. It depends on the hypothesis you've come up with. Um, but, you know, basically, if something doesn't work according to the hypothesis, you chuck out the hypothesis and start again and you look for an alternative explanation to explain what's happening around. So for things that are still happening, it's obviously much easier than for things that have happened in the distant past. We can't rerun history Um well, certainly not by any means I'm aware of. We don't have access to time travel to go back and check on things. So often when looking for scientific explanations and forming hypotheses of how things developed in the past, scientists often look for similar things that are still around to try and fill in the gaps or give an idea of how things might be able to work by looking at things that are still working. So I mentioned in the intro, evolutionary biology this is often the case. We, we don't really know how animals lived in the distant past. We don't really have any, you know, species arise, they go extinct. A lot of species have gone extinct. All of them, except the ones that are still around, in fact, have gone extinct. Um, but we need to kind of know what, what species were around so we can figure out how did the species that we've still got come to be. Uh, and one of the big questions around evolution of animals in particular is how animals 
changed from being invertebrates into literally growing a backbone. Um, now, obviously, a range of other changes came with the development of bones and skulls, but vertebrates were a huge leap from the sort of soft-bodied animals, uh, you know, worms and, and, and arthropods with their exoskeletons. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, like insects clearly are an extremely um, successful type of, type of creature. Absolutely, but they are also limited in, in various ways. So insects with their exoskeleton, that presents uh, an obvious problem is that how do they get bigger um, and, and various means of shedding their skin and, and going through various metamorphoses and things like that allow them to get bigger to some extent. But they also are limited. There is an absolute limit on the size of insects because of the, of the problem of getting... Um, oxygen into tissues over a certain size insects tend to breathe through directly through the through their exoskeletons there's holes in the exoskeleton called uh you know what they're called chris i know you know this one yes it's spiracles and it always makes me think of the song i breathe through my spiracles <laughs> yes insecty thing um yeah so yeah but uh so so the 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 difficulties of, of insects is they literally can't get any bigger. But with um, vertebrates, vertebrates are have have grown to be the biggest animals on Earth in, in multiple times. I mean, you've got all the dinosaurs, which are vertebrate animals. You've got things like blue whales, um, elephants. You know, there's been giant mammals and and giant uh, birds and giant lizards all over the Earth and and giant fish as well. Um, so that the 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 development of vertebrates change the scale, I guess, of animals on Earth as well, allowing allowing them to get much bigger than they were otherwise able to do. But they also, you know, circulatory systems and all these other systems that, that go with it um, also de- developed along with them as well. But it, it's always been a big question. How did, the, how did these vertebrate animals come about? And one hypothesis around how this change occurred was prevalent in evolutionary biology for... for about a century and a half, so 150 years, this theory, this hypothesis was around. Uh, and the the basis of the theory was that there was a creature not exactly like the creature that's still around, but very similar to an eel-like water-dwelling creature called a lamprey. So modern lampreys are freshwater animals they spend much of their adult life sucking blood from other creatures using their circular, toothy, horrifying jaw to latch onto these other creatures, fish and things like that, and suck their blood um, and, and often kill them in the process. So it's, it's quite, a, quite a horrifying lifestyle that they've developed there. Um, but they don't... But they're, they're our ancestors, so we keep them around, is what you're saying. Well, you know, you can't choose your family, isn't that what they say? Um, yeah. But they don't, they don't actually start off as monstrous vampire fish. Uh, their larval stages of the modern lampreys burrow into the sediment on the bottom of lakes and rivers, and they spend their time filter feeding uh, until they mature into adults. So they barely even look like the adult form of lamprey when they're doing this, and the change in mode of life led biologists to guess they were some you know similar to 
not exactly a missing link, but similar to creatures which may have bridged the gap between invertebrate animals and vertebrate animals. Um, sort of, you know, simple from worm-like sort of animals and then into, you know, the fish and the other things that came afterwards. Now, because they are, you know, pre-vertebrate, they don't have bones, which is why they're the candidate for this hypothesis, that also means they don't fossilise very well. So very, very hard to come by fossils of lampreys. Um, and the fossils mm. that have been found did suggest that they haven't changed much since, you know, there's, there's 360 million-year-old uh, lamprey fossils that, that have been discovered, um, and they are very similar to the modern species that still exist. But that is not early enough for them to be the you know, the missing link between vertebrates and invertebrates, or invertebrates and vertebrates. Um, but, the, but the idea that, oh, they haven't changed much, they're, they're still similar to how they were that long ago. And this all seemed very plausible until a couple of years ago when ancient lamprey fossils were discovered in shale in South Africa. So shale is a particular kind of rock which allows for preservation of soft-bodied uh, animals. Um, there's, a, there's a very famous shale bed in uh, Canada called the Burgess Shale, which gave, um, you know, hundreds of different fossils of multiple phyla of creatures that don't exist anymore, um, really kind of through shook up the evolutionary biology world when they were discovered in the uh, early 20th century. But this South African shale gave some... Uh, mo uh, some some uh, fossils of lampreys, of juvenile lampreys. So the modern ones we have, they spend their juvenile phase filter feeding. As I said, they're more like little soft worms in the in the in the beds of the lakes and rivers that they inhabit. These fossil lampreys were juvenile, but they were basically miniature adult lampreys so they looked oh. the same they had the teeth they had the eyeballs but they also had this yolk sac which is a remnant of hatching out of an egg that a lot of creatures carry around the yolk sac gives them a bit of food a bit of a boost while they get going and find something well in the lamprey's case find some blood to suck um but so these these ancient lampreys these 300 million year old lampreys that they found these juvenile ones suggested that the lampreys that we have now have actually adapted to that lifestyle after they had already evolved their blood-sucking habits. So the you know the 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 idea is that you know possibly the, the ancient lampreys were ocean dwellers. They had a different lifestyle. They had a different life cycle in the oceans. They've moved into freshwater, and pass, uh, possibly this has led to them adapting to their new environment by having this change in their in their mode of life and their life cycles. Um, but ultimately, what it does mean is that they are not likely to be similar to our ancient ancestors, which were the first vertebrates around. So these fossils they found, they're born with eyes, they have rows of teeth, they're all ready for blood sucking. They never do or didn't appear to have the uh, the necessity to go through this filter feeding um, phase of their lives 
So therefore, that was a much later adaptation, probably, and it doesn't doesn't really provide the link that they were looking for in that. Um. So then, with the lampreys discarded, do we have another candidate for what our original ancestors were? Well, so there was, you know, as as with most things, it's it's a it's a big field of science with lots of people working on it. So there was actually already other candidates for who might be. Uh, or, or which you know which area we should have been looking in. So uh, another worm-like creature called the lancelet, um, which is yeah basically just a little tiny worm-like uh, aquatic creature, has become the front runner in the ancestry stakes. They think it's probably more likely that it was something like that, which made the sort of shift from um, you know the the worm-like creature in, and gave rise to uh cartilaginous fish which is things like sharks and that sort of thing and then into fish with bones and the the rest of the vertebrates that came after um i i just i really liked this story i think you know the the idea that science is self-correcting if you just keep looking at the data you pick up new data when new evidence comes to light we don't ignore the new evidence we change the hypothesis to to try and better explain the new data. But I also have to say I'm quietly glad uh, that we are not descended from blood-sucking vampire eels because that's kind of just a bit... It's a bit creepy in the end. Yeah, I was going to say something like, are we sure the lancelets are vertebrates? Because I thought Lancelot had a outer shell of armour. <laughs> Lance, Lancelot, Lancelot did, have, did have an exoskeleton, yeah. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, mostly on the theoretical side. What so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. All right, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. And speaking of, I guess, data overturning things, um, I don't know, we're looking for some more data to understand the universe at large scales, really. And, uh, yeah, what I'm here to talk about today is kind of a bit of an out-there proposal that's emerged quite recently and caused a bit of a stir. And it is trying to explain the mystery of dark energy with another mystery, that of the supermassive black holes that live at the centre of galaxies. Uh, Now, there's a lot to unpack here, and it probably won't all make a lot of sense, but we're going to have a go here. I guess the first question is, what is dark energy, Stu? Do you know what dark energy is? Oh, look, um, I've, I've tried to sort of understand what it is, but it's basically... It seems to me to be a kind of mathematical get-out-of-jail-free card to explain why there's there's energy in the universe that they can't actually figure out where it's coming from. And it's and it's doing stuff, but it doesn't fit in with their equations. So they went, oh, it's called dark energy. That's that's my that's my interpretation of it anyway. Yeah, well, I guess I guess one way of looking at it, it is, as you said, we don't know what it is, so we call it dark energy. But it is. it was introduced to explain what we see in the universe. It was first actually introduced by Albert Einstein when he wrote his equations for the general theory of relativity, which describes gravity along with everything else uh, on the large scales of the universe. Um, and he basically did it. He called it the cosmological constant. 
Um, and he basically was a little number he put in his equations because at the time they didn't think the universe was expanding. And so he had to put a little fudge factor in to correct his equations. When it was discovered that the universe was indeed expanding, he said, sorry, my bad, and called it his biggest mistake. Um, but it can work in multiple ways, this particular cons constant. And in the 1990s, it was discovered that not only is the universe expanding, but its expansion is getting faster. It is accelerating. Uh, this is a discovery for which the Nobel Prize was awarded by um, Australia's own Brian Schmidt, among others. And yeah, it, it appears to be the rebirth of the cosmological constant. For all intents and purposes, it is kind of like an energy field that, as far as we can tell, uniformly fills space, as if it was just a universal constant. But that's basically what it is. It does have certain properties that you can work out from the equations. Um, among them is it has negative pressure, which is something that's a bit tricky to get your head around, especially how that makes things expand. But um, yeah, that's what we know of dark energy. So yeah, we don't know what this dark energy is. We know some of its properties, but we know very little about it. We just know that because the universe's expansion is accelerating, there has to be something driving this acceleration. Now, there are some candidates for an energy field that fills all of space. And one of them is comes from quantum mechanics. And as you might know, um, quantum physics and Einstein's theory of general relativity don't necessarily play that well together. Um, and this is a good example of it. So quantum fields have kind of a vacuum state, like a base state that is not zero generally. So one easy thing to say, well, you know, it's the vacuum energy of the universe is what is giving us this dark energy. Except the only problem there is if you do the calculations of the quantum vacuum energy, it turns out to be something like 120 orders of magnitude too big. That's 10 to the power of 120 times too big, which is a ridiculously large number. And most physicists, I think, look at that and go, well, that can't be right, and assume it just cancels out in some way, and let's not worry about that. That's clearly not the answer. We don't know why it would cancel out. That's another question that we can't explain, but hey, there doesn't seem to be an energy field that strong filling the universe. But this is where then supermassive black holes enter the picture. And this is one theory is that this vacuum energy could be hidden inside these black holes. Uh, and that's what this latest work is doing, is looking at a bunch of black holes and trying to figure out, do they have the right properties that could match this dark energy or this vacuum energy? With me so far? Well, yeah, but I mean, this, this does bring to mind a question is that I thought that black holes were so powerful and they would, you know, draw everything into the black hole. But this is suggesting that there's energy coming out of the black hole in some way, or it's producing energy. Well, I guess this is where it's a bit tricky to understand the equations or the, the model they're putting forward. Um, but the idea is that even if this vacuum energy, this dark energy is hidden inside the black holes where we can't see it because nothing can get out of a black hole, it still will have an effect on the expansion of the universe. Uh, because black holes do interact with the rest of the universe through gravity. Right, 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 right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so the energy is yeah. there, but it's, but yeah. Okay. So it's contained within the black hole for want of a better description, because we don't really know what's inside a black hole, but yeah. 
Exactly. Now, these are not just any black holes we're looking at here. These are supermassive black holes. These are the black holes that seem to be at the centre of most galaxies. They can be millions or billions of times the mass of the sun. Um, there have been a couple photographed recently, have made headlines, including the supermassive black hole at the centre of our own galaxy. And yeah, they are everywhere because, like I said, they're at the centre of, of most galaxies. Uh, now, for the purpose of this study, they looked at elliptical galaxies, which are kind of galaxies that don't have the nice spiral structure like ours does. Elliptical galaxies vary in size. They can be some of the biggest galaxies out there are the elliptical galaxies. One, it's kind of been known for a while, but they confirmed it with one of with some of their data, is that over cosmological time, the black holes at the centre of these galaxies appear to grow faster than expected. Like you'd expect them to grow over time. I mean, if two galaxies collide, obviously black holes can combine, but also you expect them just to suck in stuff from around them. But, you know, they look at these galaxies, they look at the amount of um, matter in them and, you know, stars and gas and those sort of things. And the black holes seem to be growing a lot faster than they should be with the galaxies around them, which is kind of an odd observation. And so what these um, this latest study did then is they kind of did some calculations on the rate of that growth of these black holes. And they found that it is pretty closely correlated to the expansion of the universe. As in, the black holes seem to be growing larger and more massive as the universe expands, which is something that you would expect if they were basically composed of dark energy. Okay, okay. But, but, and, and there is the uh, correlation's great, but. <laughs> yeah. But, can't say it, you've got to say it. But it is not causation. That's, that's absolutely right. That is absolutely right. Um, it does kind of make you wonder, though, I mean, if it's not a causal relationship, then what could be causing black holes to grow at the same rate as the universe is expanding, which is an interesting question. But look, like you say, correlation, not causation, and also doesn't sound very plausible to most people, I've got to say. Because uh, although I suppose this is a way of hiding the energy so that we can't see it in the normal universe, um, and although there are lots of supermassive black holes out there, they don't appear to be nearly enough of them or they're nearly big enough to account for the expansion of the entire universe. They're very large, obviously, but they're a fraction of the mass of the galaxies they live in, a tiny fraction of the mass of the galaxies that they live inside. And so the idea that then they're somehow controlling the expansion of everything else beyond those galaxies seems kind of unlikely, um, but then again, you know, this is, this is an observation, I guess, come, it's come from fairly basic models, um, and then, uh, yeah, observation of the galaxies themselves. So it's not a really robust theoretical framework for how this could actually happen, how you could have black holes made of dark energy and how they could be controlling the expansion of the universe. There's a lot of question marks there. So yeah, look, it's, like I said, it's got a lot of scepticism. It doesn't sound plausible. Like you say, it's a correlation more than anything else. It could be that because they've gone looking for this relationship that they have fooled themselves and that other people, if they to do similar experiments, would not find such a relationship. I don't know. We need more data, obviously. Um, but look, it is a really intriguing idea. And, um, you know, it would be exciting if it's, if it's true. 
or not because we yeah we do want to understand where dark energy comes from we do understand what's inside black holes although it's a weird one look hey you never know something weird is going on out there stranger things have happened exactly well i don't know <laughs> we'll um we'll uh, leave the, the jury open on that one <laughs> And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.